Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning. Uh, If you brought your Bible, you can uh, open with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be working through the entire book this morning. You think I'm kidding. And we're going to do it in a shorter amount of time than a normal message. In the fall of 1857, Old Dutch North Church. How's that for a name? Old Dutch North Church. On the corner of Fulton and William Street in New York City was about to close its doors. In a last-ditch effort to keep the ministry going, the, the church appointed a man named Jeremiah C. Lamphere as a lay missionary to begin a visitation program. Jeremiah was a tradesman. He gave up his work to receive an annual salary of a whopping $1,000 per year for work that he had never done. He made his rounds and he visited people in their homes, and then one day he had an idea. Perhaps businessmen would give up an hour during their lunch to pray. So he put out a sign in front of the church, handed out a couple placards, or handed out a couple bulletins uh, saying, prayer meeting, noon, Old Dutch North Church. In the first meeting, six people showed up. Lanfear didn't know that the spiritual condition of the city and of the nation at that time was ripe for revival. He only knew that people needed to pray. In the second meeting, 20 people showed up. In the third, 40 attended. A financial crash hit the market in October 14th of that same fall, and in a short time, newspapers was co- the newspapers were covering what was being dubbed as the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting because it had taken over the entire church building and had over 3,000 people in attendance regularly. All types of people throughout the city attended, from lawyers and physicians to merchants and clerks, bankers and brokers, manufacturers and mechanics, porters and messenger boys, everyone who could spare a few minutes to pray during the noon hour arrived and they sought the Lord together. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen out of the city that only had 800,000 at the time were gathering daily in New York City for prayer. One time, a man wandered into the Fulton Street prayer meeting who intended, he wandered into the meeting and his full intention that day was to murder a woman and then commit suicide. He listened to someone who was delivering a fervent exhortation and prayer and urging the duty of repentance, and suddenly the would-be murderer startled everybody by crying out, Oh, what shall I do to be saved? Just then another man arose with tears streaming down his cheeks and asked the meeting, asked the meeting, the people in the meeting to sing the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. At the conclusion of the meeting, at the conclusion of the service, both men were converted to Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, our God is a God who delights in his people gathering together for prayer and working among his children who pray and cry out to him. Today, we're starting a new series uh, that I, a series on the church and that I've titled God's Church, A Family of Strangers. We're going to be working through a biblical understanding of who we are as a church. And over the course of the next, uh, this week and the next five, we're going to be unpacking what God has to say about his church. But this morning, we're going to start where the church starts in the New Testament with prayer in the book of Acts. We're going to see that God's church is a family of strangers who prays. And we should pray. I'm going to trace out five ways in which prayer shaped the early church in the book of Acts, and I'm praying that it motivates us to be a praying family of strangers. As I said, this message is going to be shorter. Uh, The service is going to conclude shorter. And after the benediction, we're going to have just a time of prayer for those who can stick around after the service. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary points out in its commentary on Acts that prayer is mentioned in the book of Acts 31 times in the book, and it is covered in 20 of the 28 chapters. The appeals to prayer in the epistles and by Jesus himself, it should be enough to compel us to be people of prayer. But certainly when we are given the example of the early church and we see in in vivid detail of how earnestly and continually they, they plead to God in prayer, it should be a clear sign to us that we as the church should be a church and a people who pray and seek the Lord together. Uh, Acts opens. In the first chapter, with a command from the resurrected Jesus to his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And then Jesus leaves. He ascends into heaven. They're left to themselves. Boy, that would have been an awkward gathering, would it not? The person who united all of them, Jesus, has been crucified, buried, he's risen from the dead, and now he has ascended into heaven and he just tells them to wait. Now, sure, some of them, like uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, like Andrew and, and John, were family. They 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 were blood relatives. Others shared tra- a, a similar trade, like fishermen. So they had perhaps potentially some business connections. But overall, Jesus was the only reason why these hundred and twenty disciples stuck together. In fact, uh, Acts goes out of the way to list them and their differences in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And there's about 120 of these, these disciples gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem, and it paints this picture of this ragtag group of disciples who are only gathered together because they are disciples of Jesus. Verse 14 in chapter 1 shows us what they do. When Jesus isn't with them, all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. The pattern that Acts lays out for the birth of the church is that it rests on the church's identity as a family of strangers, people who who aren't united or bonded together with one another other than their link as a disciple to Jesus Christ. And they're bonded together, and what bonds and seals them together is their faith in Jesus Christ, as it is expressed, in devoting themselves 
to prayer. The Spirit falls, we all know the story, the, the Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2, the 120 believers are increased in number as they preach the gospel in all sorts of languages, and 3,000 people are added to their number. And now they have all different types of disciples from the Roman Empire that are now followers of Jesus. What are they going to do? What is going to unite them? The end of chapter 2, specifically in verse 42, we see that what keeps them focused and united to one another, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church continues to grow as they share the gospel and pray, but they also come against strong opposition. One Pharisee named Saul approves of the murder of the first Christian Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And Jesus, proving that he can save anyone, he chooses to save this murderous terrorist, named, religious terrorist named Saul. He blinds Saul with his glory. The Lord Jesus appears to a, a disciple named Ananias in a vision, and he told him that he had saved Saul and that he will find Saul praying. Ananias meets Saul, he is praying, uh, who is praying and blind. Ananias lays hands on Saul, prays for him, and the scale, it's like scales fall from Saul's eyes, and now Saul can see. Ananias. is now united to his enemy through prayer. A man who was formerly going to kill him, there were two former enemies now because of their united faith in Jesus Christ are bound together and put in the same family. Not just strangers, but enemies. In chapters 10 and chapters 11 of Acts, God needs to convince the church that Gentiles are included, that he has the power to actually save Gentiles. And he needs to prove it to them beyond a shadow of a doubt so he, that he accepts and approves Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus Christ, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So how does God meet Peter to show this to them? He gives them a vision while Peter is praying that of all of the animals being clean. And at the same time, Cornelius, this Gentile, sent for Peter because he was praying to God and God told him to go send for Peter and come to him and they unite. Peter, Peter, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius. The first Gentiles are then converted to Christ. They believe in the gospel and they're welcomed into the family of God. All of this birthed by prayer. As the church matures and spreads through the Roman Empire, the Apostle Paul makes it to his practice to pray with the churches before he leaves in his next missionary assignment, as we see in Acts chapter 20 and 21. My dad is awesome. I love my dad. He taught my brothers and me a number of things, but he loves fly fishing. And even when my dad isn't physically present with us, it's very natural for my brothers and I to gather together and to go fly fishing. It's what he taught us to do. The same thing happens with the people of God. If we are born again by God's Spirit, it's very natural for us, even though we don't have anything other than Jesus that unites us, it's very natural for us, supernatural even, to pray together. But unlike fishing with my dad, Jesus is actually present with his people and actively working among them to unite us to God and to accomplish his will through our prayers. The very thing that Jesus taught us to pray is to acknowledge that we are now in God's family by calling and acknowledging God as our Father who is in heaven. We are his kids from all different stripes of life, all different backgrounds. He unites us to himself and his family 
of former strangers who are now bonded together by his spirit and calls us to pray to him. We also see through the book of Acts that the church prays for those who are oppressed. Uh, no, we're going we're to go back. We also see in the early church that, that, we, that uh, the early church prays and affirms in prayer that those whom are leaders in the church. See, prayer affirms ministry appointments in the church. Back in chapter 1, before the uh, pouring out of the Spirit, we also see that God uses prayer to affirm a ministry appointment. They appoint a new apostle in chapter 1. In chapter 6, the apostles are described as appointed by the ministry of the word and pra- or ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons who are appointed to serve were appointed through prayer. In chapter 14, the new, each of the elders of the new church are appointed through prayer and through the laying on of hands. Now, I love being an American. I think our system of democracy is the absolute best that the world has ever seen. I believe that we are a nation that has executed Western political philosophy better than any nation in the history of the world. I love the democratic ideal that every human is endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Self-government is the exception in world history. We get to vote for our leaders and we get to vote them out when they're doing a bad job. American citizens have that power. But you know the difference between the U.S. government appointments and leadership appointments in the church? When God appoints a leader into the church, the church itself recognizes that appointment through prayer. As a church, we, we simply acknowledge what God is already doing and what God already has done in prayer. We see what God has already done. When we vote as a congregation on new leadership, we're not voting in the same way that we vote for a president or a senator or a mayor. We're simply affirming that we believe what God has already done, and we're putting our name behind that. We don't have any power in the church other than what God has already given to us and is revealed through prayer. Thirdly, we see that prayer releases people from oppression. We also see the book through the book of Acts that the church prays for those who are oppressed. Peter's thrown into prison after he is persecuted by King Herod. He breaks out and James is martyred. Uh, Peter is released by an angel in the middle of the night, but for details, uh, but the, uh, before the details of the rescue are given, Acts tells us that the church was praying for his release. When he arrived at the home of Mary, uh, at the home of Mary in the middle of the night, guess what the church was doing? When he knocked on the door, they were praying. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas release a slave girl who is practicing divination through prayer. They get thrown in prison by the slave girl's owner for freeing her from uh, demonic oppression. And uh, while in prison, guess what Paul and Silas do? They sing hymns to God and they pray. And then as they are praying, an earthquake frees them, but they don't leave. The jailer gets saved. And they are freed the very next day because God moved through their prayer. God loves to free the oppressed for the sake of his own name. Yesterday, 10 seminaries throughout the former Soviet Union released a joint statement condemning Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, calling the church to prayer. They write this, seminaries in Ukraine, two seminaries underground in Russia, Uh, Six others throughout the former Soviet bloc write this all as one united statement. We confess the real and unlimited power of God over all countries and continents. 
as well as over all kings and rulers. Therefore, nothing in all of creation can interfere with the fulfillment of the good and perfect will of God. We, together with the first Christians, affirm Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. We express solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We share the pain of those who have already lost their loved ones. We pray that all of the aggressors' plans would be thwarted and put to shame. We call on all people of goodwill around the world to resist the lies and hatred of the aggressor. We call on everyone to petition for the cessation of hostilities and to exert every possible influence on the Russian Federation in order to stop the unmotivated aggression towards Ukraine. We ask you to pray for the peace of the people of Ukraine and for courage and wisdom for Christian churches so that they continue to serve those in need. We pray for our authorities and we put our hope in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is and remains our refuge and our fortress even in time of war. Psalm chapter 46. That's what faith in Jesus does. God loves it when his church praise for the oppressed and the marginalized and the attacked. We also see through the book of Acts that God heals the sick through prayer. It's a sign of his kingdom coming to earth and the continuation of the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts. At the beginning of chapter 3, Peter and John arrive at the temple during the scheduled hour of prayer and they heal a lame man. At the end of the book, in chapter 28, Paul heals a sick man through prayer and the entire community came out to receive healing through Christ in Paul's apostolic ministry. I love appetizers. Any of you chips and salsa people? A good appetizer appropriately uh, satisfies or appropriately teases the, the, the appetite before the main meal. In fact, I can't even eat tacos unless I have about 100 chips and salsa beforehand. When we pray for God to physically heal people, because it, it, when we pray for that, it serves as a, a spiritual appetizer for what God can do for our soul. James tells us, if anyone is sick, call the elders and pray that God may heal him. Yet the purpose of healing physically is always to point you to a deeper healing that we need from sin. God may not heal people physically for a number of reasons, but he sure loves displaying his power to save our souls. The church should be a church who prays for people both to be both physically and spiritually healed. And fifthly, the, advance, uh, the prayer advances the mission of the church. In chapter 1, Jesus instructs the people to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come and to baptize them. The implication is that they were going to be praying as they wait. Prayer launches the mission of the church. 3,000 people are saved. In chapter 4, after Peter and John are beaten and released and told not to preach in Jesus' name any longer, the entire church gathers to pray, and they don't gather to pray for protection for John or Peter. They pray for boldness to continue to share the word and share the gospel. In chapter 8, it's through prayer that the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, and the mission advances to the neighboring regions of Jerusalem. Prayer affirms the salvation of the Gentile Cornelius, and the church commissions Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries to the Gentiles through prayer. Paul continues throughout his missionary journeys to be dependent on prayer every step of his journey, and the gospel advances through him to the ends of the earth, and it continues today, even in a crazy corner of the world like Reno and Sparks, Nevada. 
In order to win a war, brothers and sisters, there needs to be a steady stream of resources flowing to your side to defend from the attacks of the enemy and be able to launch offensives offensives to cripple the enemy's defenses. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the supply line to God's power. It informs us of our mission. It launches our attacks against the evil one. And it unleashes the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must be a church of prayer. After the service, we're going to pray according to these five areas. If you want to throw up the last slide, uh, according to these five areas, and we're going to pray either publicly, we'll have two mics here, and we'll just alternate between them, and you can pray publicly. Uh, You can pray silently, just sitting in the pew and, and praying. We'll have our pastors and shepherds and some of their wives up here if you would like to have a pastoral prayer over you and your life or, or your marriage. Uh, you can come and they will pray for you here, or you are permitted to huddle in groups and, and pray together and for one another in one of those four ways. Uh, so after the benediction, if you need to go grab your kids and you need to be, want to go do something else, entirely okay and more uh, entirely okay and permission for you to do that if you've got places to be, entirely fine. Um, we just ask that you would exit silently or quietly um, because we're going to continue in prayer at the conclusion of the service here. Let's pray and let's worship our God. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. And we praise you for calling us to be a family of strangers who prays to you, who is united by our faith in you. God, I pray for us as a church to be a praying people to seek you. God, it seems as if the gravity of the the spiritual gravity in in the world, in our community, and in our lives is is heavier potentially than, than ever before. But yet, it's as nothing to you. For you have the power to save, you have the power to heal, you have the power to release You can do as you please, and and I pray, God, that you would allow for us to to respond to you appropriately in worship, and that you would permit us, by your grace, to come before you in prayer. So help us, O God, to draw close to you, to love you, to worship you, and to pray to you. And may you do mighty things in and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.